Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You may be seated. We're going to talk tonight about how to live and grow in Christ. We have went through... Uh, Peter's first letter, and we're entering into his second letter, and we're still talking of counsel of Christ-like living, and uh, we will go through Second Peter this week and next week, and then we'll be done with this study, and then we'll move on to something else here in the coming weeks. But it's been a good study reminding us on how to live and, and have that counsel of Christ-like living. Tonight, we want to look at how we as Christians must continue growing spiritually, being obedient to our calling, and also anticipating Christ's Return. We want to discover the steps of maturity that must take place as we surrender to Christ and His dwelling presence. And, and we look there at our golden text to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we love you. We ask you to add your anointing unto your word and unto your servant to preach and teach and each one here as well as servants to receive it that we may live and grow in Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This second epistle of Peter is, is another letter, another letter that Peter wrote. It was probably about two years after uh, what we know as First Peter. It was about two years after he wrote that letter that Peter wrote uh, what we know as Second Peter. It's his second letter, and he wrote it to the same body of believers that he wrote the first one to. And it was, remember who those people were. They were Christians that were scattered throughout the northern providence of Asia Minor. And, and certain changes, though, had taken place in the circumstances now of the church uh, since that first letter. That first letter was written to, to strengthen these Christians as they had entered into this, this new time of persecution and a, and a, and a time of, of being spread abroad and out of their comfort zone and out of their land and, and living uh, as Christians amongst heathens, really, and, and amongst the population. And we talked about that, especially uh, last week, how that we live to serve God and how to live to serve God, even in those adverse situations, even under uh, extreme pressure and persecution. Uh, but now things have changed uh, for the church. Now the occasion of this second letter was a threat uh, of apostasy within the church. Uh, so it had changed from an external danger of physical harm to now an internal danger of corruption within the body. So he had wrote that first letter warning them of, of, of to be strengthened and to be encouraged and, and how to, to live under persecution and under trial and, and all that was facing them. Now two years later he's writing to these same people who had adapted uh, and who seemed to be doing well now except for the part that there was a threat of apostasy within the church uh, and there was a, 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 an internal danger of corruption rising within the believers. Uh, so Peter considered this latter thread. Uh, he considered the need to write this first letter. I want us to get this uh, because he considered the need to write the second letter even more important than the first letter. It is so much more important for us to guard against corruption that will come on the internal uh, than it is to worry about uh, all that's going on on the external. Uh, all that live godly shall suffer persecution. Uh, but he says godly folks uh, should not have corruption in their life. So he considered this threat that was happening and the need uh, far worse than the first one. Uh, so he begins to write this letter. Uh, the, the, the subtle false teaching had begun to arise and it's time, and it crept in uh, to this body of believers uh, in the same form of heresy uh, that Paul was dealing with when he wrote to the Colossians. Uh, and there was these Gnostics that claimed to have superior form of knowledge. They believed uh, that the earth was created by an evil God, uh, and it was, uh, it was uh, taken and separated and mandated uh, from the true God, uh, and that Jesus lived on earth only as a spirit and not in the physical form. They didn't believe that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. They, they were beginning these false teachers even way back then. Uh, Paul had, uh, had faced it and wrote to the Colossians about it. Now Peter feels the need to, to write it. Uh, there's always been some messed up 
beliefs, uh, some false doctrines that began to, to slip in. So when Peter wrote this letter, uh, the heresy was uh, not so vigorous or active as it was uh, 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 dominant or dormant within, within the church. Uh, it was, what does that mean to be dormant in the church? It means it was lurking there uh, and it was waiting there uh, to rise up and to begin to flow. Uh, so Peter said, I'm going to confront this uh, before it happens. Uh, and they were ready enough uh, and occurrences of evil that was happening there to see what Peter would soon uh, bring to pass. So Peter wrote to encourage these Christians, in, uh, first of all, in spiritual growth and to warn them against being led away uh, by the error of the wicked. Uh, and it was not just the letter wrote to them that were spread abroad in Asia, but it's also written to us today how to live godly in an ungodly world. And we're going to talk about that next week as we finish up. But he wants to, to, our focus tonight is to look and see how we as Christians must continue growing spiritually, being obedient to our calling, and anticipating Christ's return, how to live and grow in Christ. So let's look first at Second Peter chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 9 and talk about tonight, first thing, how do we continue to grow? How many knows it's important that we continue to grow? That we have not, if our child stops growing, we're going to find out why. It's the same way with us spiritually. We've got to continue to grow. I've often put it this way. We cannot be saved and satisfied. We can't say, well, I got saved, I'm good. We've got to grow. We've got to grow in it. So first four verses here, uh, Peter reminds us of some precious promises that we have as believers. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that obtain uh, like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. According to his divine power hath given us, given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, uh, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Peter identified himself, first of all, both as a servant and as an apostle. Servant means one who is in bondage to another, while the word apostle refers to someone sent out with full authority from Christ. Uh, so Peter tells them, uh, first of all, I'm a servant. Uh, he did not uh, uh, put them in that order vicariously. He didn't put them in that order accidentally. Uh, he put them in that order on purpose. Uh, before a, a man, woman, boy, or girl uh, could ever become a leader or an apostle, uh, they must be a able to serve. Uh, one funny meme that has come out over the years about ministry said, what do you mean? Uh, you called in, you say you're called in the ministry. You won't even tote chairs. Uh, and that's the reality of it. Uh, we must first serve. And Peter did that uh, very importantly there to say, first of all, I'm a servant. Uh, and the second of all, I'm in bondage to Jesus Christ. And second of all, uh, I am sent with full authority from the one I serve. Uh, so the sharing of this light, precious faith that he's talking about, uh, is this common denominator that brings us as believers together. Uh, the word there uh, in Greek translated precious is made out of two words, equal and honor. So the literal translation of that word precious is equal and honor and privilege. Uh, isn't it wonderful to know that we are equal uh, in honor and privilege? It don't matter uh, where we came from, what side of tracks you came from, uh, what country you came from, what color your skin is, uh, that we are equal and we all are in honor and privilege uh, in Christ Jesus. So in his first letter, the readers were first described by their geographical location. While here, in the second letter, uh, they're described by their, ex their spiritual experience. Uh, so we're first known uh, where we came from, but after we begin to grow in Christ, uh, it isn't a matter of where we came from, but it's a matter of who we've become uh, and where we're going. Amen? Uh, that we've got an experience that has changed us. Uh, it has changed our very existence. Uh, this faith which these people uh, had obtained was equal in honor and privilege 
privilege uh, with that of Peter and the apostles. So what Peter is saying here, uh, he uses pronoun uh, to demonstrate that the faith of the apostles was the same as that of the readers. The faith of the apostles and the faith of the readers, the faith of the preacher and the faith of the one sitting in the pews should be the same. God has dealt to each man the measure of faith. We all have access by one spirit into the holy of holies. Uh, so he reminded them of that. Every Christian has equal access to God. There's no big I's and little U's uh, in the kingdom. Every Christian, uh, we all have the same heavenly father. Uh, we have the, all have the same uh, prospect of eternal life. He said, I've come that you might have life uh, and that you might have life more abundantly. Uh, was that you, just Peter, James, and John, and Paul, uh, and Barnabas, and Thomas? Uh, no, that you means me. Uh, oh, somebody get a hold of that tonight. That you uh, is me, that I might have eternal life, uh, that I might have, I, I have. Uh, if we could realize that tonight, because uh, we're living in a time, we're living in a time more so than ever before, uh, with mental illness, uh, and people thinking down on themselves to think that I, I, I am not adequate, all right? I'm not, uh, I don't have the privilege, or I don't have the access, uh, or I, I can't, they're, they're more spiritual than I. Uh, it does not have to be that way. Uh, we're as spiritual as we want to be. Uh, we're as holy uh, as we want to be. We're as close to God uh, as we want to be, uh, because now the devil will try to separate us from God, uh, but ultimately what he uses to separate us from God, go ahead and pinch yourself, uh, and you'll know what it is. Uh, it's that flesh itself. It's those emotions. It's those things that says, I am not good enough, or, or I'm better than you. That's all flesh. That's all emotionalism. And if we could get beyond that, Peter is saying, listen, we all have the same access. Every Christian has that same access. And the reason for this equality is the righteousness, not ours. Ours is, is filthy rags but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And Peter says that we all have that equality in him. Because, verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of our God and of Jesus our Lord. Uh, oh, why are we here tonight? Well, it's simple, because Jesus is Lord. Sister Gilda and Sister Rhonda probably remember this old hymn, this old starter song for church service. Maybe some of you others do too. He is Lord. He is Lord. He has risen from the dead, and he is Lord. I don't know about the churches you went to, but we get going on that, and after a while, that song leader would change it up just a little bit and begin to sing, uh, He is my Lord. Uh, he is my Lord. He has risen from the dead, uh, and He uh, is uh, my uh, Lord. We have access by one Spirit, uh, and we're able to see great things, uh, not because of who I am, uh, not because of who you are, not because of where I came from. Uh, nobody cares where I came from. You wouldn't want to come where I came from and not where uh, we, we went the other day and the GPS brought us into that church where the commissioning was uh, and it brought us up through the back roads I told Paul I said man it's bringing us through the ghetto uh, it's bringing us to the commissioning service uh, the same way we got here uh, spiritually from the back door from the back roads uh, oh I'm thankful that he reached down on the wrong sides of the track uh, of Fernandina Beach Florida down there at 6th and Fur and found this boy uh, and brought me out but it's not a matter of because of who I am or what I am or who you are or where you are or the geographic location of where we came from, but it's all about where are we today in him. I feel the preacher in the house tonight. It's not about where I came from physically, but it's where I stand spiritually. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, and all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground. I'm going to be an hour and a half again if I don't stop. He is able to set us free from sin and to make us righteous. Isn't that wonderful? Our faith in him. It's our faith. How do we come to salvation? Our faith in him brought us to salvation. We put our faith in him. 
not in our ability to sin no more. How much faith do you have in your ability to sin no more without him? I'm telling you, without the compelling of the Spirit, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a one that says that I don't like that. I'm an old sinner saved by grace. But can I tell you, without the continual convicting and dwelling uh, Spirit of God, uh, that's just who I would be. Uh, and I'm thankful that I don't have to stand here today and say, well, I'm just an old sinner. Uh, oh, I was, but I've been filled uh, with His Spirit. Uh, but I'm apt to sin if I go after the flesh. I said why Paul said, walk not after the flesh, but walk after the Spirit, uh, because the flesh will lead you away uh, oh but in him uh, he's giving that grace to us his grace and his peace uh, are not just added to our life i love this part according to his divine power is given unto us all things that pertain unto life and god and it's through our knowledge where's it at where's it at verse two grace and peace back up verse two grace and peace he didn't say added unto you right he said multiplied unto you. So we come here and we see that he is saying that uh, that we have this grace and peace multiplied and they are ours, uh, not just a little bit added to it, but in abundance. Uh, it's in advance that in knowledge of God and of Jesus, uh, the word knowledge here does not mean this, this intellectual understanding, just a mere intellectual understanding, but a full discernment and a full acknowledgement Sometimes you just got to acknowledge who you are, what you are not, just as I am. That's the first step of us getting to where we're at. Any born-again folks tonight? You know how we got to be able to slip our hand up real quick right there? Because we had to first acknowledge the fact that I'm a sinner. It's the ABCs of salvation is what they call it. Acknowledge that you're a sinner, believe on him, and then confess. ABC. So that was the first step. And there's times throughout this walk uh, that that acknowledgement and that knowledge uh, and that discernment is multiplied. It means that this is a spiritual experience uh, and it has to deepen in our life. Uh, and not only that, it deepens fellowship between us uh, and God. Uh, and as our fellowship with God deepens, our fellowship, as we've talked about from the first letter, will deepen with one another as well. And so that deep knowledge, that true knowledge of God in Christ, according to verse 3, produces not only grace and peace, but it produces holiness. Now, nobody wants to talk about that anymore because holiness is an action of requirement. The whole New Testament unites in denouncing a profession of faith that makes us no difference in behavior. If we profess it and there's no difference, the whole New Testament is saying there hasn't been a change. Throughout, people try to debunk that, and people say it don't have anything to do with my behavior. It don't have anything to, way, to do with the way I act, the way I dress, what, what I drink, and what I do. It has nothing to do with that. Uh, it's a prayer that I prayed, and I'm, and I'm covered. Uh, but that's not what my Bible teaches me. That's not what I learned from Peter in 1 Peter or 2 Peter. That's not what I learned from Paul's letters, uh, who wrote uh, two-thirds of the New Testament, writing uh, to, to young Timothy and, uh, and Titus uh, and other pastors, uh, and writing to the Colossians and the Galatians uh, and Ephesians uh, and the Romans and all the churches uh, scattered there in Corinthian throughout uh, those letters that Paul, uh, Paul is talking about living godly uh, in an ungodly world. Uh, he's talking about behavior behavior matters behavior matters we don't let our kids go around and act a fool we straighten them out god's not going to let us go around and act a fool and carry his name he's going to straighten us out sometimes he has to do it through the pastor and then you don't like the pastor that's all right peter said that god has provided everything we need for life in godliness did you hear that? God has supplied everything we need for life and godliness. Takes away every excuse, doesn't it? 
We have run out of excuses there. So the next time somebody comes with an excuse, just say, God has provided everything you need for life and godliness. I just can't seem to live this thing. Well, quit trying and let Jesus live it. Th- take them back to Galatians 2 and 20. Uh, say, Pastor takes us there all the time. It's no longer I, but Christ that uh, lives in me. Uh, see, when we're trying, uh, and we have to try to live a Christ-like life, and we've got to try to do the right things, and, and we've got to try to avoid the evil things, uh, we need a checkup. Because when the Spirit is working in us, uh, we're walking and living in the Spirit. And so when we're at the try so hard, that must mean that we're, we've got off track into the flesh. At least that's the case for me. I've been serving the Lord for a long time. It's still the case for me when I find myself, I, gotta try, I need to try better, and I need to try to do better, and I've I got to try to act more spiritual. I need to try to act more like a preacher. I need to try to act more like a pastor. This ain't an act. It isn't an act. It's an action. And so it has to be put to action. And so when I see that happen in my life, I know I've got to get there under the fount where the glory comes out and begin to let him begin to do a sanctifying work in my life because he's given everything we need for that life. False teachers, false teachers, they love to put emphasis on knowledge. So Peter stressed that the object of knowledge in the Christian life is the Lord who calls men who calls men and women to salvation by his glory and his goodness. Now, these terms that Peter is using here are frequently used to describe God throughout the Old Testament. So it was not surprising that Peter claimed them for Jesus through whom the divine excellence and glory had been supremely manifested. So the word whereby here indicates uh, that Christians have the promises of sharing something of Christ, moral excellence in this life, in his glory thereafter. Now we, we talk a lot about how Jesus said, these things that you see me do, you'll do these and even greater. And we think about the miracles and laying on of hands, but can it also mean leave, living sinless in a sinful world? He said, I did it. You can. Did not Jesus say, be ye holy as I am holy? He said, you can do it. Why? Because I've given you everything you need to do it. And so when we find that we're not doing it, we've got to check ourselves because we, we may be giving in to that looking for some knowledge. Paul told Timothy, this is not in any of our lesson tonight, but I think about this. Paul told Timothy that there will be those that's ever learning but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. So there's all the emphasis on that knowledge but not talking about truth. And so Peter reminds him the only truth is the terms that are frequently used throughout the Old Testament of God's glory and God's goodness. The idea of God's promises was deeply entrenched in these Old Testament uh, scriptures, and he began to tell these early Christians uh, as they heard this preaching and this announcement that God's promises to his people had now been fulfilled in Christ. Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law. I didn't come to destroy the Old Testament. See, see, some of these New Age folks says, just go ahead and throw out that Old Testament. I, I know that for years that it's been a thing that they... Even the Gideons, they've done it. They just hand a New Testament. Why are you giving them half a Bible? Give them the whole thing. New Testament tells us the Word of God rightly dividing the Scripture, the whole thing. And so they, they get into this place that, that we don't need that. But Jesus said, no, I didn't come to do away with that. He said, I'm building on that foundation. I'm coming to that place to have that promises of sharing something and knowing that that idea is deepened through him, that these promises are great because they come from a great God and they lead to a great life. He said they're precious because... Their value is beyond any calculation. Jerry Bridges said this. He said, your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. Right? And your best days are never so good that you're beyond the need 
of God's grace. So Peter was writing to these individuals who escaped from seductive allegiance into a society at odds with God, and now he's saying you must grow in Christ. Uh, so he's telling them here uh, that in this growth process, you've got to continue to grow, and the first thing you do uh, is you lean on the precious promises of God. So let's look at the second part in verse 5 through 7. Uh, there's a growth process. He said, and besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to your virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. By the way, Gracie did a wonderful devotion tonight for praise team on charity. It was wonderful. And she reminded us of our need of love and how we bring forth that charity, and how we need more charity and more love in our society today. And that's what Peter's talking about. He told his readers to give all diligence, there in verse 5, or every effort to do what? To develop our faith. Now, we can say, I've been given faith, I've got salvation, but what have we done with it? Peter said, give all diligence to develop it. He said in the, the first part, of this chapter, that God has multiplied it unto us, but he hadn't asked us to multiply. He's had uh, asked us to do a little simpler task of adding to. God said, I'll do the multiplying, but I need you to start doing some adding to. Do your diligence. Do your diligence to take and develop it. Christians have God's promises. Uh, we share his nature, and we battle the corruption of this world. In order for us to mature, we must add to our faith the spiritual virtues outlined in these verses. Faith is the root from which all succeeding graces grow. Faith has two aspects, belief, uh, which is the beginning of a right relationship with God, uh, and two, sustaining faith, or the trust that it is the strength of daily Christian living. Uh, so then he speaks of the quality of virtue uh, or moral excellence uh, and was used to uh, proper fulfillment of anything. So the word knowledge suggests, uh, as we said, practical knowledge or discernment, uh, and it's gained in the practical exercise of virtue, which in turn leads to the fuller knowledge of Christ. In verse 6, he continues to go on and begins to talk about temperance, it's a big struggle for a lot, self-control. That's what temperance embodies. It's to be exercised in every area of life. Our instincts, our drives, and desires, we all have them. They should not master us. But through the presence of Christ dwelling within us, we can control them. Understand this tonight. Instincts, drives, and desires are going to do their best to master you. But through his presence, it's only through his spirit that you're able to control them. Without them, we're in trouble. Without his spirit, we're in trouble. Then he moves on from self-control, and he talks about once we get there, that as we're adding to it, what happens next? Patience or perseverance. Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in perseverance. Note this relationship of these two virtues, power over that is which is within us is self-control. Power over that which is without is perseverance. So we've got power over what's inside of us uh, with that temperance or self-control, and then we've got power over that that is on the outside of patience or perseverance. Uh, he's working it there. It's practical awareness of God in every aspect of God life. Uh, even when I don't see it, he's working. Even when I can't feel it, he's working, uh, and we acknowledge that in every area. So to know that God's working on the inside uh, to bring that self-control so on the outside I'm able to persevere. If you have no self-control... You're not going to persevere because your lack of self-control is going to stop your pursuit. Amen? Your lack of self-control will stop you from pursuing anything in God. You'll just go with whatever. So we have that power over that speaks of the courage and the endurance of voluntary and a daily enduring of difficulties for the sake of honor and usefulness. Uh, to the steadfastness of character, uh, he said, we need to add godliness. And this means piety in the Greek or reverence. He's saying that we need to add reverence. Uh, and it's referring to that uh, respect for spiritual things. We need a reverence for the things of God again. 
We need a reverence for the house of God again. We need to, to begin to let that raise, arise up within us. A buddy of mine wrote a devotion today and posted it on Facebook and said that the church has lost its influence. You know why we've lost our influence? Because the church has lost its reverence for the house of God and for the things of God. This is not a social hall. This is not a place to come to be entertained. This is not a place to, to come uh, and for us to showcase our talents or, or our abilities. Uh, it's not a place for us to out-sing or out-play or out-preach uh, or, or to make a name for ourselves. A buddy of mine just took his first church on Easter Sunday, and I was talking to him this weekend. And he didn't call him a jackleg, but I did. Some jackleg preacher told him, I just used that church for a stepping stone. I had to look back and say, because you've lost your reverence for the things of God. He said, no, I see God doing great things right here on this mountain. I said, that was the right answer. I taught you well. We have a responsibility to bring reverence in all to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So Peter reminds them of that. An aspect of godliness is brotherly kindness. The apostle was saying that there is something radically wrong with a religion that is so selfish it cannot meet the demands of personal relationships. Love among Christians is a distinguishing mark of true discipleship and represents yet another area where false teachers are deficient. And the crowning mark, the cr crowning mark of maturity, as Gracie shared with us earlier, is charity, is love. Paul said. And the text that Gracie used tonight, 1 Corinthians 13 to 13, the greatest of these is charity. The greatest of these is love. It's the crowning mark. It's not just a love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, but it's a love for all humanity. It's easy to love somebody who's lovable. It's, it's easy to pick up little Samuel back there and cuddle and love on him because, hey, babies are lovable. But how about the unlovable? How about, we've seen so many examples of that, that people just, it just blows your mind. You think, man, how could they show them love after what they did to them? Christ-likeness. And then Peter gives a warning in verses 8 and 9. He said, for if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren or, nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. So in verse 8, he's revealing a terrible possibility. Ineffective, unfruitful Christian life. It also reveals the purpose of our knowledge of Jesus to make us effective and fruitful. Verses 5 through 7, we saw that it shows that faith produces in us as we begin to mature in this Christian life. And verse 8, how it bounds into these qualities. Uh, but sadly, uh, many are blind and nearsighted. Uh, many Christians have this, not, this blind and nearsightedness of a reality uh, that's happening within the church. Weakness of spiritual sight or insight or foresight, for that matter, results from careless Christian living. When there is a weakness of spiritual sight, when we have no insight to the Word of God, and we have no foresight of what God wants to do, or just better yet, we just don't have a clue. We're clueless of what God is doing, what God is up to, what God wants us to do. Spiritually blind. Spiritually blind. We all have a purpose. We all have a go-ye, great commission that we've all been called to. And when we don't, we don't have sight of that, when we don't have the insight of that, and we don't have the foresight of that, God has put things in place. He said that, that he has put that the man of God would dream the dream. You know what he said that we have to do as a congregation? He said we don't have to dream it up. God said I'll put that dream in the leader's heart. But he did say that we have to do what? We have to have a vision. You know what a vision is? A vision is just a, a, just a capsule of it, just a small piece of the dream. 
He said, you don't have to dream the whole dream. He said, I put that dream in the man of God's heart. He said, but if you can catch just a vision of that. What does that take? It takes sight. It takes insight. It takes foresight. It takes spiritual sight. If we don't have that, we're living carelessly in our Christian walk. Failure to grow in many times is due to sheer forgetfulness. To think that a person could actually forget the moment and early experience of his conversion and the joy of his salvation. Oh, if you could see where Jesus brought me from to where I am today, you would know the reason why I love him so. And you know why I love him so? Because I have not forgot where he brought me from. And that's what that songwriter is saying. We can't afford to forget where he brought us from. The possibility for failure in the Christian life should act as a motivator towards continued and increasing earnestness in our faith. He's warning, he's warning here that there, there's a possibility that you could lose sight. There's a possibility that God can multiply all of this to you and you can add all of these things to it. Uh, but there could come a time that you could be struck with spiritual blindness, uh, that you could be struck with forgetfulness, uh, that you could forget to pray, forget to read your Bible. You don't want to do that. You don't want to get up day after day uh, and forget, because I guarantee you, you forget to read your Bible and you forget to pray. Uh, come Sunday morning, you're going to forget to go to church. And after a while, you're going to forget God. And after a while, you're going to forget uh, what he's created and called you to do. How do you know? I've been there, done that. And it's a long road back. Forgetfulness. Darkness. Peter felt a need to warn them, to warn them. This is a pastor. Peter is a pastor of pastors because he's holding nothing back. And then the second part of this, he tells them. He, he tells them not only to grow, he said, but be sure of your calling. Be sure of your calling. You, you're growing, but be sure of your calling, verses 10 through 21. First of all, how do we assure of our calling? First, 10 and 11 says, be diligent. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence, there's that word again, to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we've got a question here uh, that we have to ask ourselves. Are calling and election synonymous or are they two stages of the divine process? Note now, here in 1 Peter, you look back what we studied over the last few weeks, the first week in 1 Peter 1, he talks about the divine side of election. That's emphasized there in his writings. And here, it's the human side. So he is saying we must be sure. We must be sure. Eugene Peterson paraphrased verse 10 of our text saying this. So, friends, confirm God's invitation to you, his choice of you. Did you get that? Confirm God's invitation to you, his choice of you. No man cometh to the Father lest the Spirit draws him. So the invitation has been given to you. And the choice that he made was you. He's saying, don't put it off. Do it now. Don't throw that invitation on the counter and say, I'll RSVP later. Today is the day of salvation. Do it now. Do this, and you'll have your life on a firm footing. So God's call and election to salvation takes us right through eternity. This means that our lives now are something of a proving ground for heaven. Uh, we don't have to be, nor can we be, good enough for heaven, uh, but we can begin to prepare ourselves now to live there. The Lord Jesus, in whom we trust now, has indescribable plans for our future. He has called and elected us for everlasting life with him. So not only has he called us, but he has chosen us. He's elected us. He's pulled us in. So two very different things. That's why Peter says, make your calling and election sure. And here we are again, 
here reemphasize what we just talked about in the last section of of living it out and walking it out and and having that Christ likeness and that growing process now in making our calling election sure being sure of our calling he he reiterates it in verses 12 through 15 and he says this don't forget don't forget he says wherefore i will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things though you know them and be established in the present truth verse 13 yeah i think it meet as long as i am in this tabernacle talk about in this flesh to stir you up by putting you in remembrance i'm not going to let you forget i'm going to keep reminding you why do you keep preaching preaching that pastor because you need to remember knowing that shortly i must put off this my tabernacle even as our Lord Jesus Christ has shown me. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. Uh, so Peter is here. Uh, he's proceeded in the state and the grounds on which his knowledge of Christ rests. He thought it right uh, to remind his readers uh, while he was living of what they already knew. Uh, so he was conscious uh, that his death is foretold by the Lord in John 21, 18 and 19, was not far off. Peter knew he was about out of here, so he says, as long as I'm alive, I'm going to remind you. Matthew Henry stated this. He said, the nearest of death, the nearness of death, makes the apostle diligent in the business of life. Our Lord Jesus had shown him that the time of his departure was at hand. Therefore, he bestirs himself with greater zeal and diligence because the time is short. He must soon be removed from those to whom he wrote, and his ambition being that they should remember the doctrine he had delivered to them. After he himself was taken away from them, he commits his exhortation to writing. Peter knew his time was up. So he says, so I'm going to remind you, don't forget. And I'm going to do everything I can to help you make sure you don't. And then he said, discern truth from fables. Verse 16, for we have not followed cunningness, devised fables, when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of the majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent, excellent glory that is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light and shining in a dark place until that day dawn and that the day star rise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old times by the will of man, but by holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. It's apparent that Peter is defending himself against some accusations of false teachers, and him doing false teaching. He was teaching fables as truth, and the accusation wasn't very clear. But he reminds them that he was on that mount. Peter reminded his readers that the central character that was there, that he was on that mount of transfiguration in Matthew 17, Peter reveals there that you know, in that moment uh, that there was something that took place. And in some respect, this event was uh, uh, a vision of heaven. Uh, when the Old Testament saints and the New Testament disciples uh, and then the kingly son and the divine father uh, would be together in eternal glory. Think about that. Uh, when, when they appear there in that Mount of Transfiguration, the Old Testament is represented. Uh, the New Testament disciples are represented. Uh, the Father and Son and the Holy are represented on the, on that mountain. Uh, and we know that Peter wanted to build three tabernacles uh, and the Spirit of God said Jesus only. It's about him. And so that uh, Peter remembered that well. He heard that voice. So he reminds his readers that the central character in this uh, transfiguration was Jesus. He got it. He got it because all these years later he wrote about it. 
Evidently, Peter regarded this event with the disclosure of Christ's divine nature and the ratifying of that heavenly voice as confirming his power and his future coming. In verse 19 of our text, Peter moves his focus from the living word of God, Jesus Christ, to the written word of God, specifically the Old Testament scriptures. He's telling them there, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. So he's looking back to that Old Testament, uh, and he's pointing them back to that Old Testament, uh, saying we have that. Jesus Christ had fulfilled one prophecy after another throughout his life on earth. And this scene there in the transfiguration, so Peter's readers, he told them, you should take heed to the Scriptures. Go ahead and take heed to what the Old Testament said. And now we have this wonderful ability to take heed to what the Old Testament says to see how it comes to pass in the New Testament. We have both of them there right before us, and we're able to compare those two together and begin to see what is taking place in those Scriptures. So he's saying, take that and apply them. And Peter called the prophecies... A light shineth in a dark place. He's talking about the image of people living in a, a time of hardship and conditions of spiritual darkness. And he said, the candlelight of God's word shines on them. The light will shine unto the day dawn, the day when Jesus Christ, what did he call him? The day star comes again in the brightness of his glory. Then finally in 20 and 21, Peter emphasized that the prophetic words of Scripture did not originate with the prophets, but with the Holy Ghost. That'll leave some people scratching their head because they didn't think the Holy Ghost showed up until Acts chapter 2. Peter said that the Old Testament writers wrote as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The first five books of the Bible, Moses is known as the writer. You know how he wrote them? by the unction of the Holy Ghost. He was there, always been there. They had come from the will, not the will of man, but they have expressed the selfish desires and faulty thinking of humanity. No, uh, they didn't come as false teachers. Instead, the Old Testament prophets spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Ghost, the supernatural wisdom that followed through their prophecies had not failed, would not fail, and will not fail. Then finally, Peter reminds us as we're walking this walk, as we live and grow in Christ, hasten Christ's coming. I believe he's coming back just like he said. Amen? So we got to look ahead. Peter says, look ahead, verses chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. He jumps over to chapter 3 here. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat? Where are you going to be? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. So Peter says that all these things shall be dissolved. He's referring to the heavens, the elements, uh, and the earth, everything in it. Uh, this destruction will take place by fire. Uh, it was a sobering thought uh, to the original readers of Peter's epistle. His letter here is well to us to realize that life as we know it will be burned away in the coming judgment day. Before the development of the atomic bomb, it was difficult for humanity to even imagine such destruction. But we've seen it. We've seen utter destruction. And we've come to the reality to know it wouldn't take much. It's coming. The future judgment and divine certainty. Peter said it's not about being concerned about how's that going to happen and everything being burned up. Kind of goes back to when we talked about Peter knowing his end was coming in John 21. Jesus said, you don't worry about that. What you need to worry about, what we need to focus on, is when all these things begin to take place, 
with his future judgment and divine certainty, how should I as a Christian be living knowing that judgment is coming? Verse 11 and 12, Peter presents four specific guidelines. First, he said we should live holy lives. This word translated manner literally means exotic, out of this world, foreign. The word holy means to be separate, to be cut off. Conversation refers to one's entire pattern or behavior. So Israel was a holy nation because God called the Jews out from among the Gentiles. So as Christians, our lifestyle should sharply distinguish us from the world. Come out and be separate, saith the Lord. So we need to be holy. How do we live? Holy. We need to, secondly, we are to lead lives of godliness, which means, as we said, lives of reverence unto God, a Christ-like attitude to the things that please Him. Thirdly, we're expected to look for the second coming of Jesus. That does not mean pious inactivity. It means action. It means action. Paul told the, uh, the Thessalonians when he wrote to them uh, that they were not in darkness and they should not surprise them, uh, that he's coming as a thief in the night, uh, and we can't sleep like others sleep, but we've got to be alert, and we've got to be ready. Uh, and then fourthly, he said, we should not only anticipate his return, uh, but we should realize that it's coming quickly. Quickly. Heavens on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Uh, hasting, he said, knowing that it's happening quickly. Evangelism uh, seems to be the main way to hasten the Lord's return. The certainty of all of the judgment should motivate us to witness to others. It's not gloom and doom. It's a motivation to know time's running out. That We need to live a godly lifestyle other than this world's lifestyle. Peter portrayed the final consummation as the day of God. The universal, this, he's talking about here, this universal distinction. It's not the result of any natural process, but the direct effect of God's sovereign will. That's what it's all about. The old must pass away for the new to come. So Peter proceeded to note, verse 13 of that hope and triumph, there will be new heavens and a new earth when the kingdom of our Lord comes, and believers should be looking for them, as the Lord said in Isaiah 65 and 17, Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. The former shall be remembered no more, nor come into mind. Righteousness will dwell in this new kingdom, and it will be the precious, the precise opposite of this present order. Dominated as it is by sinful desire and corruption. This is all dominated. He said, that's, that's why it's got to burn. It's got to be gone. So what do we do? What do we do in this process of looking ahead, in this process of hastening that Christ is coming, believing that he's coming back? He said, simple. Go back to point one. Keep growing. Keep growing. Chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent. How many times have we heard that word tonight? Be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. I want us to see something before we go on any further because I found this pretty fascinating about uh, Peter's writing, both letters. He spends uh, the first two-thirds of the letter just really nailing it, right? But notice how he starts verse 14, just like he did the end of the first letter. Wherefore, beloved, beloved. He said, I wrote all this because I love you. I've given you these warnings. I've given you this invitation. I've given you this information because you're loved, not just by me, but by your Father. And he said, account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. And also, as also, in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing you know these things before, beware, lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. 
but grow in grace and in knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. So in view of the coming of the Lord, Peter urged us that we seek earnestly to be blameless in his sight and to preserve a quiet confidence. Being in a right relationship with God would give us the peaceful certainty that we're needed concerning his return. We as Christians should look forward to Christ's coming. For on that day, we're going to be rewarded. Regardless, regarding the patience of our Lord as our salvation, he said there in verse 15, means that we should realize is because of God's mercy on lost people that he's not yet returned. Peter says the Apostle Paul addressed the subject of God's merciful patience in his writings. We see that in First Timothy 2 and 4, where God is described as the Savior who desires all men to be saved and all men to come to a knowledge of the truth. He said Paul's already wrote about it. Speaking of Paul's letters, Peter said that some men, in their ignorance of truth, rested, wrestled, fought against from some passages, began to pull out of them unintended meanings with disastrous results. And he warned his readers against being led away into that same error and wickedness. In verse 18, Peter summed up the whole practical purpose of his letter in a final appeal on which he began. Grow in grace. What is grace? Undeserved favor, spiritual strength, and recognition and knowledge and understanding of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He said, To Him be glory and honor and majesty and splendor now and in the days of to come. So be it, he said. He said, amen, you know what amen means, truly, or so be it. Let it be done. In conclusion, tonight, we know that stagnant growth or inability to growth, to grow, there's a genetic condition that causes people not to grow, but in the spiritual realm, there is no reason for a Christian not to continually grow spiritually. There's just some people that won't grow. Sister Pat was in here, she'd say amen. We just don't grow. But there is no reason, even though Sister Pat may be short in stature physically, she's not spiritually. Why? Because she continued to grow spiritually. Each one of us, it does not matter where we are, as we said earlier, physical side of it, because we have that opportunity spiritually. Why? Because he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. God calls and provides the resources of every Christian to grow in Christ. The question is, will we make every effort to become all that he wants us to be? That's the question we've got to ask ourselves tonight as we endeavor to walk in the faith of God and to live and grow in Christ, continuing to grow spiritually, being obedient to the calling and anticipating his return, everything that we need, all the resources that we need, all that we have is in Christ. But the question is, are we going to put forth any effort whatsoever to become all that he wants us to be? We've got all the resources. You've got the Word of God. Paul told young Timothy, he said, you've been given great examples in your mother and your grandmother. You've been given leadership. You've been people that's invested in you. People that's invested in you. I've invested nine and a half years of my life and my ministry into most of you. You've been under my ministry this time. Some maybe not as long, but I've invested in you. And he's saying, you've been given all the resources. You've been given everything that you need to grow in Christ. But now you, only you, can answer the, this question, will I make every effort to become all that God wants me to be? We put forth a lot of effort to become what we want to be in life. We tell our kids, you can be anything you want to be. Our kids tell us when, when they're little, I want to be a fireman. You can be a fireman if you want to be. I want to be a doctor. You can do that. I feel like God wants me to be a missionary. 
We've put forth everything we can to, to invest in that. We'll pay for college. We'll pay for trade school. It, it's, not, it's not every kid's going to be a doctor and a lawyer. Kid says, I want to be a, I like working on cars. I want to be a mechanic. We'll invest in them. We'll teach them. We'll show them. Because you can be anything that you want to be. We give them all the resources that they need. But Jesus is telling us, and Peter is reminding us, that God is providing every resource that we need to be Christians and to grow in Christ. Not just to be Christians, but to be mature Christians, to be effective Christians, to be a Christian that's making a mark on the world. But the question is, what are we doing with the resources? Will we make every effort God said, I know the thoughts that I have towards you. I know the plans that I have towards you. But what are we going to do with those plans? Are we making an effort to become all that he wants us to be? Remember our text, grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we stand tonight, there is no standing still. We cannot afford to stand still in this Christian experience. As believers, we should always be on the march. We should march towards maturity in our attitude, in spirituality, in righteousness, in love, in service, in courage. The muscles in our body, they develop through exercise. You ever sit in one place for a long time, a long road trip, and the older we get, the even tougher it gets that we get out for that rest area break, say, ooh, I probably should have stopped a little bit sooner. We're like the tin man. We're looking for the oil can to get us going. But we know that if we'll exercise those muscles, if we'll put them and keep them working, I've heard the old saying, a body in motion stays in motion. Faith in Christ develops as we exercise it. Every man's been given the measure of faith. You say, they, they seem like they got more faith than me because they're exercising. But put your faith to work. Love grows as we reach out to others. Through continually seeking the Lord, we grow in humility and dedication to our ministry and our ability to bear hardships. The means of grace God provides for us to grow spiritually includes studying the Word, partaking in all the sacraments of the church, continuing in prayer, building up one another, and getting involved in ministry. As Christians, as Christ followers, we should spiritually examine ourselves often. And when we do, we will detect those areas in which we are the weakest. These are the areas which we should especially strive for maturity. We all know when somebody else points out our weaknesses, we get upset. Right? We don't always want to. We know it's true, but we still get our feelings hurt. I can't remember which writer it is, Paul or Peter, but they said, it's that way because you didn't judge yourself. It was Jesus, actually, that said it. People love to take Matthew 7 and the first verse and then leave the rest of the chapter out. Judge not, least ye be judged. Right? That's all they want to talk about. Let's don't talk about the rest of the chapter. And the rest of the chapter says, if you would judge yourself with righteous judgment, there'd be no need for anybody else to judge you. So Peter is challenging us, it's time for us to search ourselves and to say, I'm weak in that area, so I need to get in an altar and stay there longer than three minutes for God to strengthen me in that area. I may need to spend some time in the altar. I may need to push back the plate. I need, may need to focus a little more on that area of my life, staying in the Word, staying in prayer, staying committed. So Peter gives us some counsel here as we're one more lesson in this series counsel for godly living Christ like living he's given us a lot but you know what he said he said God has given you every resource that you need to live godly but what are we doing with those resources I think that should be our our point of focus as we gather in this altar tonight God 
What am I doing with the resources that you've given me? Am I applying them? Am I applying them to my life to do and to become what God, what you want me to be? We, I asked some, I believe it was a Sunday morning a few weeks ago, how many knows what God wants you to do? And I think some may have been confused. They thought I was just talking about people that's called in the ministry, even though I said I'm not talking about just those that's called in the ministry. I'm talking about what we as Christians are called to do. We know what that is. It's laid out in the Word of God, what He's called us as Christians to do. We want to bear the title, but don't want to do the work. You work with those, right? They want the name tag that says they're manager, but they don't want everybody else to do the work. You know, we carry that name tag Christian. So how do I apply it? Father, we come to this altar tonight saying, Lord, you've given me plenty of resources. Oh, you've been so good to me, Father. You've given us your son in our stead that we might have life and that we might have it more abundantly. That whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the first resource you've given us. And then you gave us the promise of the Father, the Holy Ghost, to empower us. And then you gave us continual preaching and teaching and learning of your word. You've given us divine invitations. And you've given us divine moves of your spirit. You've met with us mightily in prayer closets prayer meetings, church services. You've inhabited our worship. Oh, you've given us so many resources, everything that we need to live godly and to live right. But if we squandered those resources, Lord, if we have, forgive us. Help us, Father God, to tap into the resources, the resources that work for us to put them to work through us. As we gather in these altars tonight, help us to reflect upon that. Help us to take it and apply it as individuals and as a church. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.